Well, good morning again. You may not realize this, but despite the fact that Easter is nowhere near as commercialized as the Christmas season, Easter is actually the very high point, the apex of the Christian calendar. Why is that? Easter, in its very essence, is the celebration of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, why is that so important? Because without the resurrection, the Christian faith is at at best, empty, vain, pointless. Without the resurrection, Christianity really has nothing. It's, it's, just, it's just hollowed out. And so there in Easter really is, it has to be, rightly understood, the, the very high point of the Christian calendar. It is the greatest of the feasts and the celebrations that we have. Now, I recognize, having said that, that for many of us, still, you can, you can say that, you can make that claim, but there is still yet a felt disconnect to, to Easter. You, you recognize that, okay, there's a lot being made of it, I understand that, but I don't really feel it, I don't really sense this, I don't really get this. You're unsure, at the, at the very least, and just to be candid, just to be frank, to be honest, that's exactly where I was for a long, long time. Uh, e- even after seminary, uh, even serving as a pastor in a couple different churches. It took a long time, I think, really for the penny to drop, for me to really honestly get it as to why it is that Easter is, in fact, so vital. And not, not just Easter itself, but the resurrection, that which lays behind uh, Easter. So I'm with you. I think I understand something uh, of your, your angst, your confusion. If you're not quite feeling Uh, Easter as the high point of the Christian celebration in the season. So that makes it well worth our exploring, doesn't it? Very much well worth our exploring it. We're going to look at the uh, moving on in this passage in our series through the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, By God's providence, here we are at the resurrection account. I wish I could say I planned this out five years ago. Uh, when we started this series, but I didn't. It, in His providence, it is goodness. That's just where we're landing uh, here today. In 2020, uh, we are reading the resurrection account from Matthew's gospel. So if you've got a Bible, turn to Matthew 27, starting in verse 62, and then we're going to read on into chapter 28, verse 15. So starting in chapter 27, verse 62, and reading on into 28, Verse 15, uh, Matthew is the first of the four Gospels that we have. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It's the first book of the New Testament. So Matthew 27, starting in verse 62. Hear now God's word. The next day, that is after the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember how that imposter said while he was still alive, after three days I will rise. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people he has risen from the dead, and the last fraud will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, You have a guard of soldiers. Go make it as secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. 
His appearance was like lightning, and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus, who was crucified. He is not here, for he is risen, as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. While they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, Tell people his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. Well, let's pray together. Lord Jesus, thank you for allowing us to have this time here on this Easter Sunday. Oh, we would certainly like for it to be different. We certainly would like to be assembled together as a family, as a body, as we were meant to be. So certainly these are extraordinary circumstances. Well, whereas for the sake of love and in submission to the authorities and uh, recognizing the path of wisdom that we just can't. We just can't today. And so uh, we are sitting at home uh, in very small gatherings and contemplating earth-shaking things. We ask that you would help us to, to really do that here over these next few minutes in comfortable, familiar environs to still yet be struck anew, perhaps in ways that we never have before. As the old Puritans said, oh, would you dig ears that we would hear. I pray in your name. Amen. History is full of rather stubborn facts just won't go away. History is full of some rather stubborn facts, not the least of which is the reality of the beginning of the early church and its uh, countercultural convictions and uh, behavior patterns, things that you can see there from this, its earliest days that were so unlike everyone else around them. Uh, just a couple of years ago, a gentleman by the name of George Weigel wrote an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal on these very things, and he was noting some historical facts, positions, and perspectives of the early Christians that must be explained. They can't just be stated. You have to think about 
Where did this come from? Well, here are some of the things, these, these uh, positions and perspectives, behavior patterns of the early Christians that demand explanation. A new dignity given to women in contrast to the classical culture. A self-denying health care provided to plague sufferers. A focus on family health and growth. A remarkable change in worship from the Sabbath to Sunday. A willingness to embrace death as martyrs because they knew that death did not have the final word in the human story. And living as if they knew the outcome of history itself. Now, no reasonable historian can dispute those facts. Those are all on the table. It doesn't matter what the perspective is. Any historian worth their salt is going to recognize these things are true. Here's the thing. You have to push it to the next level, and that is asking a question. How do you explain these things? Something clearly happened. A new variable entered the equation. What was it? Well, Wago goes on in the course of his, this piece that he wrote for the Wall Street Journal to say it's what he described as the Easter effect. It's the Easter effect, meaning the, the, reper, the, the uh, repercussions, the aftershocks, if you will, of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's the Easter effect. That's how you can explain these things, these changes, these countercultural beliefs and perspectives of these people. Understand that the witnesses, the, the first witnesses, had no expectations whatsoever. They had no expectation whatsoever that Jesus, well, that they would see him again. None at all. They had seen him brutally executed that Friday, and experience told them, well, death is, is final. And yet, despite all of that, on Sunday, they see him bodily raised. Bodily raised. The evidence of the resurrection. Now, let me just park that for a moment, if I may, just to put a little stress, put a little high point on, on the, the idea of this being a bodily, physical resurrection because it just won't do to, you, to speak of with the soft soap, I'll put it that way, of claiming that the resurrection was Jesus' teaching and ideals living on in the lives of his followers. That just will not do it. That is not going to explain the historical record in any reasonable way at all. It is so much more. That is not the resurrection. That's a caricature at best. We're speaking of a dead man coming out of a tomb. We're speaking of the physical bodily resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth. That's what we're speaking of here. And that the, the Easter effect, the repercussions, the reverberations of that, that it had upon his followers. The Easter message is a shocking thing. You see, the, the Easter message clearly then and now, as to the degree we hear it, is a shocking thing. And it raises some questions, some questions I'd like to think through together just for a few moments. Just, just, just two, actually. Just, just two. And the first one is this. Is this credible? That's the first question that's worth, worth asking, given how shocking this message is. is. Is this credible? Can we believe it? And the second question that comes right on the heels of, of the first is, is it relevant? Does it matter? What does it mean? Those two questions. Is it credible? Is it relevant? So the first is, is this credible? Can we believe it? Can we believe it? 
Think in terms of the witnesses. So th- three lines of evidence, if you will, that will take us to the, the answer to the question, is this credible? Absolutely. Absolutely, yes, it is. Three things that you consider. There are many other th- uh, lines of evidence to consider, but just for time's sake and, and really wanting to just kind of look and consider what we're seeing here in Matthew 28, uh, three lines of evidence that are well worth thinking about here this morning. The first is the witnesses. The witnesses. Who were they? Who were they? Well, of course, they were his disciples. They were also women, and I realize that this is not exactly politically correct, but it's a point that has to be made, not thinking about 21st century Western culture, but 1st century Near Eastern culture. Women in that society were at best second-class citizens. Their, their testimony, their word, they, well, they, they weren't deemed, women in that culture were not deemed to be reliable, and their, in their testimony wasn't even admissible in a court of law. And yet, and yet, that's who we read in the gospel accounts were the very first witnesses. Now, that right there is testimony to the credibility of these accounts because if you're just making this up, you don't make it up that way. No way. That's not the way you're going to write it up if you're just coming up with something whole cloth. That's the first line of evidence, just thinking through who the witnesses are. Now, let's think about their testimony. Their testimony. They have to acknowledge any honest reader of the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, has to reckon with the difficulty of the texts. That is to say that the resurrection accounts in the four Gospels don't immediately synthesize easily. Not, 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 not readily, not, not easily. Now, some would say, oh, oh, well, don't you see there are contradictions there? And that clearly points to uh, the fact that we can't rely on that. It's actually just the opposite. It's just the opposite. Those aren't contradictions. Those are complementary nuances. Four different perspectives on the same events. And given how cataclysmic, how extraordinary this event, the resurrection was, it should hardly surprise us that we would have different perspective, different nuances to this great event. They're not, not contradictory. They're complementary. And again, this is a cr- showing us credibility to these accounts. How so? Because, again, if you're just making this up, if you're just making this up, you're going to clean all that up. You wouldn't allow for any possibility of there being any, any hint of contradictory testimony. You're going to clean all that out. We're going to whitewash it. Just get it out. No, and it, that's not. The reason it's recorded the way it is is because that's the way it happened. Because that's the way it happened. And those are the nuances that the gospel writers are emphasizing and bringing to the text. So we have the witnesses. The witnesses, one line of evidence. We have the testimony. That's another. And then finally, the, the conviction of their hearts. How they felt about their subject, Jesus himself. How did these women respond to Jesus that first Easter Sunday morning? Well, let's go look at with me, if you would, at verses 8 through 10. Let's just refresh our memory there for a moment. So they, that's the women described there, they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. 
So how did the first witnesses respond to Jesus? They responded to him literally falling down and worshiping him. Now, why is that important to recognize? These women are Jewish. Understand the culture, the cultural context in which this is all taking place. And the early church was predominantly made of Jewish believers. And why is that important? Because the Jews were staunch monotheists, believing in but, but, but one God and very, very careful about that. Lots of guards and protection hedges put around all of that. And to say for a moment that a man could be worshipped was scandalous, heretical, blasphemous. And yet, how do these women, how does the early church respond to the risen Jesus with worship? Why? Because they knew him to be God in the flesh. They knew him without a, any shadow of doubt to be God in the flesh. And again, this lends itself towards the credibility. How else can you explain this? This is part of going back to, to Weigel and his that op-ed. This is the Easter effect. How else do you explain this? Do you explain it because the, the quick rise of this idea is, is, is it's, it's grounded in the trace back to the Easter fact, the Easter moment, the Easter message the resurrection of Jesus, the empty tomb. So, you have the witnesses, you have the testimony, and you have the conviction of their hearts. And there's a lot of other things that we could talk about in terms of lines of evidence as to how we can, why we would speak so strongly and, and so fervently and so con- uh, confidently of the uh, credibility of the gospel accounts. Is it credible? Yes. It is absolutely credible, which means we can trust what we're reading here. Now, before we go into the second point, think of in terms of a way to apply this. Very simple and, and quite important, actually. It rules out the need for any foolish call to a leap of blind faith. There is nothing blind about the Christian gospel whatsoever. Not rightly understood. Rightly understood, there is nothing blind about putting your hope and belief and trust in Jesus. Nothing blind whatsoever. It is a, not a blind leap of faith. It is a step of faith. It is a step of faith. It is, it is an act moving forward based on what you know. Based on what you know. An informed decision based on what you know. There's nothing blind whatsoever about that. Now, our lives are full of this, these kinds of steps of faith. In, in extraordinary events and the grand things and in and just the mundane. When you go to your doctor and he or she writes you out a prescription and you get that, you finally, you know, over the course of events, you, you're, you're at home and you're looking at the label and you take it. That's a step of faith. You're trusting your doctor's training and expertise. You're trusting the skill sets of the pharmacist and ingesting this substance into your body. That is a step of faith. There's nothing blind about it. It's based on what you know to be true of the doctor and the pharmacist. It's a step of faith based on what you know, a reasoned and reasonable decision. Or just think in terms of right now and the the CDC and their guidelines and protocols and the warnings and and such that, that we're trying to heed in our day. Well, why would we do that? Because we are trusting, trusting the research that has been done 
and their expertise and their knowledge and skill and all these things. And so therein we're willing to change, and radically so, our behavior patterns. There's nothing blind about that. It's a step of faith, a step of trust based on what we know. Well, my friends, again, the Easter message is a shocking thing. It raises questions. It raises questions. Certainly one of this is this credible. And the answer is absolutely yes. Absolutely yes. But then that takes us to the follow-up from there. And that is, not just is it credible, can I believe it, but is it relevant? Does it matter? Does it matter? What does it mean? What does it mean? Well, there's three things to consider there, just for our time's sake, just going to come at it from these three angles. And that is first to say, yes, absolutely, it is relevant. We see here a clarification. We have Jesus' own vindication. And then also with that, it shapes our own anticipation of the future. So we have a, uh, a clarification of vindication and anticipation. So the first thing, first thing is regarding is this relevant? Is this important? Why, why does this matter? It matters, first of all, gives us a clarification. Oh, my goodness, just thinking in terms of what we've read from Matthew 28, that in fact, the physical world, what we can measure, what we can see, what we can touch, is not all that there is. The physical world is not all that there is. There is a spiritual realm beyond the veil, if you will. And it comes out quite clearly. I mean, my goodness, you have angels, right, appearing here. And Jesus coming forth from the dead. Clearly showing us, clearly showing us with, about beyond a shadow of a doubt that there's more than just the physical. Not just that, not just is the, is the physical not all that there is, but death is not the absolute end. There is an eternity to consider. There is life after death to consider. And we see that implied, obviously, in the fact that Jesus has come forth from the grave. Those may seem obvious to you as you're reading the text, but these are extraordinarily important to recognize. The, the, these clarifications of the reality of the spiritual and the reality of the eternal, those, to the degree we grasp those things, will really have significant shaping effects upon our days. Now, sadly, if, if you're like me, you oftentimes live as though, well, actually, the physical is all that there is and the temporal is all that there is, when reality, no, it's so, so much more. And here we have it. Here we have before us in Matthew 28 some clarification on these points. That's the first thing. So moving on from there, not just a clarification to us, but Jesus' vindication to us. Proof positive. If ever we needed it, here it is. Here it is. Regarding his identity. He is who he said he is. He is who he said he is. All through the Gospel of Matthew, what did we see again and again and again? Well, I'll just give you some samples here. He is, in fact, the Christ. He is, in fact, the long-awaited Messiah. He is, in fact, the Son of Man, his favorite self-designation taken from the book of Daniel. He is, in fact, uh, not just that, but the Savior, the Savior promised and spoken of. The words of John the Baptist, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. All these titles. We could go on all morning and into the afternoon of the the titles that are explicit and implicit given to Jesus. Old and New Testament. Well, this is the vindication. The, The empty tomb is the vindication of his identity. He is, in fact, who he said he is. And moving on from there, his mission. Proof not just of his identity, but of his mission. Not just... It's not just that he is who he said he is, but he did what he said he was going to do. He is who he said he is, and he did 
what it is that he said he was going to do, which was what? To set us free from sin and death. To set us free from sin and death. Conquered. Conquered. We see this with the empty tomb. It's one of the the proofs that we have with the, the resurrection. His vindication. His vindication. Oh, so important. This clarification that we have his vindication that we have. One last thing, that is the anticipation. It shapes our anticipation, how we see the future, how we can look forward towards tomorrow and the next day and the next day and what is coming over that horizon. One thing we can certainly know is true about the future is his return. He spoke of his return several times prior to the events of what we read of in in Matthew 28. Put it this way, he, he said he was going to rise, and he did. He said he was going to return, and he will. He said he was going to rise, and he did. He said he will return, and he most certainly will. Now, we cannot know the timing. Those of you part of this series a few weeks ago, we were looking at Matthew 24, 25, the Olivet Discourse, and he's speaking quite explicitly to all of that, and the certainty This was the mix of the two things that we saw in so much of that teaching, the certainty of his coming, but the uncertainty of the timing. We can know the resurrection, the empty tomb, the Easter message, the Easter reality is he is coming. We may not know when, but he is in fact coming again to inaugurate his kingdom. And that's the the other part of this I want to point out. His kingdom has come and is coming in full. It has begun to break in upon this world. But one day, upon, and with his coming, it's going to come in, in its, its fullness. The reign and rule of heaven is going to come down on this earth. Jesus' reclamation of everything, the restoration, redemption, renewal of everything, absolutely everything, his return and his kingdom. Our anticipation of the future should be shaped by this because we know these things are coming and the tomb, the empty tomb, is pointing us toward the reality of these things. So, going back to the question, is this relevant? Does it matter? My friends, it couldn't matter any more. It couldn't possibly matter more. This is the most relevant, most important, most vital thing that we could consider this morning, this day, or any other. Now, there are, in terms of thinking about application, ways to go with this, there are a lot of different possibilities, a whole host. I just want to go drill for a moment here on just, on just one. Many well-meaning people are trying to help us not to worry and not to be anxious in this time of global pandemic by talking about statistics and talking about odds and how they are actually, depending on who you listen to and what the models and charts are that they're using. Really, the odds are, the statistics show that it's just, the probability is extraordinarily unlikely, one, that you're going to actually really get sick from COVID-19, and even far, 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 going much, 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 you know, the the number's getting much, much smaller in terms of the probability, the likelihood, the statistical data as far as you actually dying. And so the idea is you look at the statistics and that's supposed to, you know, give you some encouragement and help you get through the day. How does that work for you? We don't need probabilities. We need certainties. We need certainties. And Easter gives us certainty. 
certainty about the now and certainty about the forever. Can I just put it just this plainly? What's the worst thing that can happen? You know what the worst thing that can happen to the follower of Jesus? That you're struck down by this virus and finally get to move on to the next stage. Now that's a shocking message, I know. They're quite countercultural, I know. But that's good news. That's really, really good news. Oh, is this relevant? The Easter message, again, is a shocking thing, I know. Raises questions. But oh, does it give us answers. Let me come back to the pandemic for a minute. The effects that it has had on, on so, so many segments of our culture, our, our land, our communities. Of course, those who are sick and suffering right now. The healthcare professionals, the workers of all different kinds all, all around in clinics and hospitals and, uh, and ERs and everywhere. Uh, on the front lines of this, you might say. Those who are vulnerable and most susceptible uh, to infection. Uh, and then, of course, you have those who are unemployed and wondering about you know, how they're going to pay for this and this and this and what tomorrow is going to hold in, in that sense. Then we have uh, students and families and government authorities and then, of course, local churches having to make all kinds of adjustments and struggling through with all of these things. So many different ways that we can and need to be praying. With all of that in mind, understandably, researchers, medical researchers, are doing all that they can to come up with a treatment, to come up with a cure. And there are a lot of different lines of investigation going on right now. Some are brand new and untested and untried. Some are actually, they're going back and looking into history from years, if not decades, and even further back, ancient cures to see perhaps if this might work uh, on this. Or maybe it's something that addressed another problem in our current day, but perhaps might have some positive effects on this. So a lot of different possibilities and lines of inquiry. And, and you read the stories, and, and oftentimes this is the statement that's given. This has tremendous potential. This has tremendous potential. Now that can be tremendously encouraging until you really begin to think about what that actually means. And what it actually means is we don't know if it's going to work. We don't know, really, if it's going to work. Well, my friends, the Easter message has more than potential. The Easter reality has more than potential. It has a certainty to it. To the degree that we will embrace this, its healing effects are sure. Its restorative, transformative, deep work is sure and certain. Why? Because we were made for it. You and me, you and me, whoever you are, wherever you are this morning, you were made for this message. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. You were made for it. That's why it has the effect upon so many, has had the effect upon so many through the centuries, through the millennia. It's why even as we speak these words and think about these things and ponder them, so many feel a stirring within. Something deep, some nerve is being touched. Why is that? Because you were made for it. It's why there, it's like a cord that's resonating deeply within you because you were made for it. You and I, you and I. This Easter message is a beautiful thing. But it's not just beautiful, it's not just sweet, it's true. It's shocking. But true raises questions. 
and gives us the answers. Can we pray together? Lord Jesus, you are the risen one. You are not dead and decaying as so many other pretenders are. You are risen and ruling. You are not ruled. You are not governed. You are not a passive observer. You are the risen ruling king, long promised and awaited, the one that we need this day too. Christ is risen as the message we need. And all that comes as a clarification with that and all that about you that is vindicated with that and all that we can anticipate because of that, this is such a transformative message and we ask that you would please, Jesus, help us to hear. Help us to hear and go forth to the degree in any way creatively and courageously and compassionately that we can share it because it certainly shouldn't be kept to ourselves. Pray in your name. Amen.